Hello, and welcome to the Balanced Garden Podcast. I'm your host, Tiger Lily Raphael, and in this episode, I'm talking about some of the things that love might be. I was also lucky enough to have a chat with Oliver Heath, a leader in sustainable architecture and biophilic interior design, which literally brings the outside inside. So stay tuned to find out more about that in part two. Before we get started though, I just wanted to let you know that the Balance Garden online yoga timetable is changing slightly from the beginning of March, with a few classes moving around and a new yoga nidra joining the schedule on Tuesday evenings from 7.30 to 8.30pm. For those of you who've never heard of it, Yoga Nidra is an ancient relaxation technique that guides you into a state between waking and sleep. It's proven to reduce stress by slowing down the brain waves, which releases serotonin and calms the sympathetic nervous system, which causes the fight or flight response, to allow the parasympathetic nervous system to take over, which enables the body to rest and repair. Yoga Nidra is even used by the US Army to treat post-traumatic stress disorder and chronic pain in soldiers. It's a great way to help yourself get a really good night's sleep. I'll include a link to some more info about Yoga Nidra and a free taster next Tuesday the 2nd of March, which you can sign up for from the blogcast at balancegarden.co.uk, which is where you'll find the rest of the show notes for this episode. Now, what might have been a cause of stress for some, though perhaps less so this year with all the usual outlets closed, Valentine's Day got me thinking and writing about love. In my blog, Will Lockdown Open Up Valentine's Day to Everyone, I labelled it the shamelessly commercial hallmark holiday that doesn't even try to pretend to hold religious or historical significance and asked what it might mean in this day and age. But there is, of course, historical and religious significance to this day, though its origins are a little murky and mysterious. The Catholic Church recognises at least three saints called St Valentine, who were all martyred in various stories about heroic romantic characters from Rome. But these only appeared when Lupercalia, the pagan festival which took place on February the 15th, was outlawed by the Pope in the 5th century and Valentine's Day declared in its place. Lupercalia was a fertility festival dedicated to the founders of Rome, Romulus and Remus, and honouring the Roman god of fertility, Lupercus. Traced back to the 6th century BC, the legend tells of King Amulius, who ordered Romulus and Remus, his twin nephews, to be thrown into the Tiber River as retribution for their mother's broken vow of celibacy. But the servants sent to drown them took pity on the babies and placed them in a basket on the river instead. The river god then carried the basket downriver where it was caught by the branches of a wild fig tree and the twins were rescued by a wolf mother, 
who reared them in her den at the base of Palatine Hill. The twins were then adopted by a shepherd who taught them his trade, and later, after killing King Amulius, they went back to the wolf mother's den and named it Lupercal, founding Rome on it. Lupercalia honoured the wolf mother in the hope of pleasing the Roman fertility god Lupercus. The ceremony involved the sacrifice of male goats whose blood was smeared across the forehead of two naked Roman priests and wiped off with a piece of milk-soaked wool. After a feast, the men would then run around naked, whipping the women with strips of the sacrificed goat hide, who offered their bare skin to receive this fertility rite. Partners would then couple up for the duration of the festival, often staying together for a year, or even marrying. Over time, the festival became more subdued, more chaste, with less blood and nakedness. But it wasn't until much later that it became definitively associated with love. During the Middle Ages in Britain and France, it was thought that February the 14th was the beginning of the birds' mating season, which added to the idea that Valentine's Day was a day of romance. The idea of courtly love also originated in the Middle Ages with the Cathars, a Franco-Christian sect that rebelliously honoured the divine feminine in the face of a patriarchal church, a woman symbolising something so perfect and divine that she inspired a passion beyond physical attraction, beyond love to a sense of religious worship. Gradually, tales of Guinevere and Lancelot, Tristan and Isolt, and Romeo and Juliet, which were intended as warnings of a spiritual love being turned into something physical, came instead to be portrayed as a realistic expectation by fairy tales and films which were absorbed into mainstream culture. One of the characters most iconic in romantic culture is, of course, that naughty naked cherub, Cupid. The Roman god was a re-characterisation of the Greek god of love, Eros, who used his golden arrows to incite mischievous interventions and elicit bonds of love in the lives of gods and mortals. The ancient Greeks had eight words for different kinds of love. Passionate love, eros, playful love, ludus, obsessive love, mania, committed love, pragma, family love, storge, compassionate love, agape, friendship love, philia, and self-love, philosia. Although we only have one word for love in English now, Science shows that different love produces different hormones in the body. The feelings most often associated with romantic love are caused by dopamine, an addictive drug that causes OCD-like behaviour designed to ensure the reproduction of our species. Dopamine also comes with cortisol and noradrenaline, stress hormones which trigger the fight-or-flight response, hence the association of anxiety and danger with new love and sexual excitement. 
An experiment in 1974 involved a woman giving her number to men first on a wobbly string bridge over a canyon and then on a safe and sturdy bridge. They were far more likely to feel aroused and call her if having met her in a state of peril. Companionate love, on the other hand, comes with a combination of calming hormones including oxytocin, the bonding hormone, and vasopressin, the cuddle hormone. You can read more about the many secret ingredients of love potion gradually added over the centuries in another one of my blogs, Post-Romantic Love. The link's in the blogcast. Biophilia is a relatively new word used for the love of nature, defined as the inborn affinity that human beings have for other forms of life. The term was first used by psychoanalyst Eric Fromm in his 1973 book The Anatomy of Human Destructiveness and was then the title of a work by the biologist Edward Wilson in 1984 which proposed that the tendency of humans to focus on and affiliate with nature and other life forms has in part a genetic basis. It makes sense that if the stress-driven fight-or-flight response evolved in the wild to keep us safe from saber-toothed tigers and other real-life threats, then immersion in the calm of nature can still induce serotonin and stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system, much like yoga nidra or companionate love does. Here to talk about how design can use biophilia in buildings to make us feel better is Oliver Heath. Oliver, you've been doing, working with with, um, biophilic design for quite a long time and a bit of a pioneer of this. Quite new concepts, which um, only sort of started to really appear, it seems, in like popular language from the 80s. And I wondered if um, you could tell us a bit about how you heard where where and when you heard it mentioned and discovered the concept yourself biophilia quite literally means a love of nature and it explains human innate attraction to nature and to natural processes and um essentially it's something that's innate to all of us and it's in a way it's in a sort of evolutionary ethos that suggests that we've existed in close connection to healthy forms of nature throughout human evolution as a means for basic survival. Um, So, you know, we sort out healthy spaces uh, filled with plants and nature as a means to to survive, thrive and flourish. So biophilic design in a way is kind of looking at those kind of those aspects that can help us survive in nature and find ways of bringing them into our modern built environment. Um, spaces where that are often quite noisy, harsh, geometric, stressful, kind of uh, lacking in nature and biodiversity. And recognizing that nature, for many of us, plays a very important role to support our physical and mental well-being. And yet, you know, we, we've chosen to live in these kind of very inhospitable environments, really, to some extent. And, and it's working at how we bring them back into the built environment. So like many of us, you know, I've, I've recognised that nature's played a, you know, a really important role in my life. I grew up in Brighton, 
playing on the beach and running wild in the countryside and climbing trees and building dens. And, and then later on, as I got older, I became a scuba diver at 14 and was diving on the English Channel. Uh, and then a windsurfing instructor when I was 18. And then I went to study architecture. So it was kind of made quite a lot of sense throughout my years, six years of studying architecture, that my passion for the natural world would sort of fuse with my passion for the built environment. And I think a lot of buildings go, you know, we're a building, you're inside it, that's it. Nature is outside, it's dirty, it's dangerous, we don't want it. But actually what we're recognizing now is actually our connection to the natural world is so fundamental to support physical and mental well-being that we have to find ways of bringing it in. And biophilic design, as a result, it's kind of that perfect medium for doing it. So I found out about the term about nine years ago when I was working in the field of sustainability and was looking for ways to engage people with how to create uh, healthier, happier buildings that um, had some responsibility for the natural environment and, and found that actually many of the conventional drivers to getting people to think about sustainability were very, what we call carbon centered. So it's all about, you know, embedded carbon and in-use carbon and your, your impact on the environment. It's all measured in tons, but you know, nobody knows how big a ton of CO2 is. And, you know, it's very difficult to engage with it. So a lot of people are going, well, I, you know, maybe I'm just not that engaged or bothered by, by, by CO2 and sustainability. So my conversation switched from this carbon-centered conversation towards a human-centered conversation. They said, well, you may not care about that, but maybe you want to live in a home that is warmer, that is healthier, that supports your physical, mental well-being. And everyone's going, oh, of course, I want to be, everyone wants to be happy and healthier. Of course they do. It's like, well, kind of talking about the same things and these things are interconnected. So I found this sort of new route of health and well-being, and particularly biophilic design to be um, one that many people could get, could engage with and, and was a route to, and a stepping stone towards engaging with, with the wider conversation around sustainability in the built environment. That's a great, um, yeah, explanation. Thank you. Um, not, not very succinct, sorry. Oh, no, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not, not looking for succinct here. <laughs> um, sustainability um, concept being so separate from the very thing that it's seeking to protect and that actually if you just look at nature it kind of is full of examples right of how to do things and and I'm guessing as an architect and, a, and an interior designer you must just find never-ending sources of inspiration and new ways of doing things through through looking at, at nature as a source well there are there are three basics for bio-based design systems so uh one is called biomimicry which which mirrors the sort of engineering systems that allows nature to um, develop and grow and and evolve and so biomimicry really sort of looks to take inspiration from these natural systems and it might take uh, inspiration from the beak of a, of a kingfisher and um, use that as the model to design the nose cone of a train. Uh, or it might take the sort of fin of a whale to look at the efficiency of it moving through water and convert that into the efficiency of, of a wind turbine. So, so biomimicry looks at nature's engineering systems and it's very much about how things can be used more efficiently um, and with, with renewable energy systems and, and, and create a sort of loop of usefulness in what we now call the circular economy. And um, we've also got biomorphic design, 
which kind of takes inspiration quite literally from the forms that we see in nature. So it's a, bit, a little bit like um, columns shaped like trees that hold up buildings or, or um, Gothic cathedrals um, or, or the work of Anthony Gaudi, that's all very biomorphic. And then we've got biophilic design, which is really about humans connection to nature and, and how we can tap into nature to improve the function of building of the buildings that we're living and working in. So how do we make spaces more productive, more creative, more engaging and more inspirational, but also how buildings can help us to restore, uh, reduce stress and also restore from uh, our physical uh, and mental exhaustion um, as, a, as a means to sort of reduce negative costs. So things like absenteeism, staff turnover um, and, and lack of kind of uh, productivity. So um, th those are the three bio-based design systems. And, and, you know, so I think, like you say, there is never ending amounts of inspiration to be taken from nature and all its wonders and work out how we can live very much in harmony with it and recognize that actually we're very much part of it. You know, our health and well-being is intrinsically linked to the health and well-being of nature around us. You know, we can't, we can't separate the two. People think that they're separate from nature, that they're somehow above it or masters of it. And it's an incredibly arrogant and short-sighted vision of, of our life on our planet in amongst this sort of vast biosphere and, and the diversity that lives within it. Yeah, I guess it's also kind of symptomatic of, of a direction of travel. The 21st century was all geared towards and, and in a way sort of in increased urbanization and detachment from nature and conquering and tidying and trying to get nature under control um we're now suffering from you know the consequences of that in so many ways that we've had to kind of go full circle come back to the very nature that <laughs> we were trying to control to um yeah get find ways of getting better and coming from a sustainability um, background and I know you worked for the Department for Energy and Climate Change and Energy Saving Trust and Waste Resources Action Programme. How viable really is it that homes could be made all of these things so more more energy efficient, more economic and more conducive to well-being? Is that, is that a possibility? Yeah, so, so basically what, what you're asking is, it's sort of what's the, the connection between creating energy efficient buildings, but also buildings that can support uh, the well-being of its occupants. And I think uh, traditionally, those two things have been thought about quite separately. You know, so on the one hand, we're talking about this carbon centered issue of, you know, what's the impact of a building on the wider environment? And on the other hand is what's the impact of the building on the people that live in it? Now, ultimately, we need to be taking both of these forward to, to create truly sustainable buildings. We can't have a successful built environment without that, because, of course, the majority of buildings are for human beings. And we have to create buildings that facilitate whatever action it is they're supposed to be undertaking, you know, whether it's a building to work in or, or a hotel to kind of hang out and have leisure time in or healthcare or education spaces or even our homes. All of these buildings would benefit from that dual approach, benefit in terms of the way they, they interacted with the environment, but also um, supported 
um, the well-being and the activity of the people within them. So it's absolutely possible. And we just need to kind of step back and go, well, what are we really designing the built environment for? And what's the viewpoint? I think for too long, buildings have been measured in success uh, in their construction through their ability to be um, uh, kept to a particular budget and to be built within a particular time. But they're a very short-term vision for, for the success of a building. Have you imagined that you know, many buildings that we're living in now have been around since the, I don't know, uh, uh, the, the, the Regency period, Victorian, Edwardian, you know, many of them that we're living in are 150, 200 years old. You know, but think how long it actually took to build them, maybe six months, maybe a year, but they've been around for so much longer. So you know, the, the net impact of that building is reduced. So we've got to start thinking, you know, what's, what's the purpose of the building and how are we truly going to measure success? And that's going to be in the long term. Because actually, you know, 90% of typical business operating costs are in the staff uh, and only a tiny fraction actually in, in the kind of the, the energy of the building. Um, so, you know, you've got to take that long-term vision and make sure that it's a building that, that is both reduced impact and, and you know, use less, less resources in its construction, but also in its use, but also to create a space where people are happy, are healthy, where they feel supported by that building to, to work and to focus or to undertake the task, but also a building that they enjoy being in that they don't feel exhausted by, and that doesn't make them ill. I mean, it, it seems, you know, when you put it in those terms, it seems like, well, of course, that's how we should be designing buildings. But so rarely are they designed in that way. I mean, think about how many, how many homes are there that you can really walk into and go, this is a building where our health and well-being has been truly thought about. I mean, how many hospitals have even been designed in that way? You know, not just, you know, how do we operate on somebody? But so few hospitals are even designed to properly support people in their, in their recuperation with, with elements of nature and greenery and natural light and views out and, and all those things that, that science and research studies have demonstrated have a tangible effect in improving the quality of experience. So, you know, I think there's an incredible amount of work still to do. Yeah, and, and still, I guess, a shift from that kind of chronic short-termism and you know, single-minded measurements of like GDP of, you know, it's all about minimum input, maximum output, maximum profits when actually the longer term cost, like you say, is so much greater and the longer term benefits could be so much more. It's, um, yeah, so the, the hospital examples actually quite baffling when you think about it, how how you as a well person can walk into hospital and start feeling quite ill even um interesting there was an interesting study i just told you about so there was a psychologist called roger ulrich and uh, he did a study back in the 1980s of, of patients coming out of gallbladder surgery and what he did is he just looked at the, the medical recuperation records and he found that the patients in these hospitals were recuperating in two different types of room one set of patients were recuperating with a view onto a brick wall. Another set of patients had a view onto trees and greenery. What he found was that the patients overlooking the trees and greenery recuperated 8.5% faster, and nearly wow. 10%. Separate studies have shown that actually patients recuperate in natural light, recuperate feeling less pain, and with 22% less pain care medication. 
So imagine, you know, those benefits for the patient getting out of hospital, recuperating faster. Imagine scaling up those financial benefits for the likes of the NHS. You know, the potential for it is amazing. Yeah, it really is. And for so many reasons, as like you say, the, the health, um, the human health reasons, but also all the targets that trying to be reached across all sectors. It, it's, it seems so simple and yet this topic can appear so complex and baffling and impossible at the same time. So it's quite reassuring to yeah. be reminded it's... It is, it is, it's sort of complex, but you know, if you think about it, we've been buying into the concept of design for hundreds of years. You know, we buy the idea of design, whether it's, you know, classical architecture, Gothic, uh, Art Nouveau, Art Deco, modernism, whatever. But actually, if you think about it, so few of those are actually measured in terms of success. It's the style of the moment that reflects some of the kind of wider cultural, economic, social issues that are going on. Now what we have is a set of, you know, robust peer-reviewed studies that demonstrate this connection between human health and well-being and, and the success of buildings. And so, you know, at last we've got some studies that literally demonstrate that if we improve air quality, it improves experience and reduces absenteeism and illness. If we improve connection with, with sunlight and views, people are more productive, more creative. Um, elements of greenery can, can, it can enhance the, the uh, staff attraction levels, can, can retain staff. You know, there are all these studies that, that you know, even though um, we've got all those studies, people are still skeptical. It's like, well, yeah, you know, we'd do it, but it's going to cost us money. Yeah, but what does 6% more productivity mean to you? Oh, yeah, that would be good. Well, put a number to it. What would it add? You know, oh, that's a lot of money. So, well, that's the extra cost. You know, how much does it cost you when people leave your business? You know, it's, it's, it's some of the studies say it's two and a half times their wages to find someone new uh, and recruit them and train them up. So, you know, if you can retain staff and get them to be happy and healthy and more engaged and feel valued, then everyone wins. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of the frame, framing that in a really tangible, easy to understand, you know, if we, we are still thinking in terms of numbers and, and return, return on investment and the research. You must have learned so much from that as well. I mean, how nature actually affects our brains sort of what does the research tell us about what's going on on a physiological yeah. level yeah it's kind of fascinating um, and, and again it's stuff that we all know um, mm. if you kind of go back to where we're, our lives are at you know we, we do live in very unnatural environments uh, very very different to the sorts of environments that we uh, evolved in that we survived thrived and flourished you know, like I said, our, our environments are noisy, busy, geometric. There's, there's, there's lots of kind of background pollution, whether it's acoustic or atmospheric. Um, we've got, you know, reminders and social media. In a way, we're just on all the time. Our, our, we're, we're constantly fired up to be responding to things, to be on social media, to be multitasking, to be, you know, staying up late, getting up early, exercise, you know, just on the whole time, which is not how we ever evolved. You know, we'd have intense periods of activity, um, we would find the food, the water, whatever, and, and we would recuperate. Now we're just on the whole time. So, so it's kind of a, it puts our immune systems under enormous stress. 
Now, um, biophilic design, is, as I'm sure you, everyone will know, uh, spending time in nature makes you feel good. You know, when you, when you go to the mountains or the forest or the beach, you know, you just feel that stress wash away. And so you just kind of watch the sort of gentle movement of the leaves or, or the kind of lapping of the water or, or kind of the birds and animals in the mountains. Um, you know, stress washes away, you feel calmer, you feel more relaxed, you, you have very different conversations and interactions with people. You spend a little bit more time with people outside if you get camping uh, or, or you're outside more. Your, your circadian system changes, you start to go to bed earlier, you sleep better, you wake up feeling more refreshed. You know, many of us recognize these symptoms after we've been on holiday, particularly a holiday where we've been out in nature a lot. Um, and, and, you know, you get back to work and you're like, I can't believe my work is insane. Uh, I'm trying to answer all these emails and trying to do my work, have these phone call, Zoom conversations, I'm trying to do all this, balancing all this stuff I'm going out, or we used to, and uh, I get involved in social media. You know, it's just overwhelming. And, and you know, pre-COVID, it was a bit like, well, how, do, how was I ever doing this? And you, you know, you, you feel that stress just kind of like kind of grab you again. Even after a couple of hours, it's as if you've never been away. So the point of biophilic design is, is in a way to, to find means for nature to be brought into your space, to, to elicit that similar um, physical, mental and emotional response to kind of try and reduce that, that excess level of um, stress and exhaustion from mounting up and, and particularly useful in, in, in spaces where um, there's a lot of stress, workplace, uh, hospitality, healthcare spaces, maybe even leisure spaces, helping people unwind. And now we're seeing those ideas being transferred from the commercial world into the home because we're all at home. So we're going, well, how do we, you know, take all that, that brilliant knowledge and all that research and, and bring it into this, this space that's now having to incorporate all these different things. You know, it used to be just where you'd live there and you'd watch TV and you'd hang out with friends. But now you, you've got to work there as well and, and invite the work world into your personal life and try and find some balance and to, um, between your, your, your work and your social life. Um, and... Uh, kind of make sense of it, but also try to make sure that any work that you do is, is kind of kept at, a, at a, a healthy level. We don't let the stress build up. So what we're now seeing is those ideas being brought into the domestic environment uh, for good reason. And I think that's going to be one of the valuable aspects of, of what happens as we move out of COVID. It will be interesting to see what happens. Um, you know, it's been interesting to see how this kind of awareness and like you said this uh this inherent understanding of how it feels to be in nature has I think become kind of much more widely recognized because it's the only place you kind of can be outside and around people and you know it's just been incredible to see like the parks full on a freezing cold like January day and um I just wondered how the how the pandemic has changed the kind of work that you've been doing or been been asked to do or your own projects that, that you've been working on. Yeah, well, like you say, people are definitely recognizing that the walls they surround themselves in have a dramatic impact on their physical and mental well-being. And if this is it, you know, we don't have that diversity of all the other spaces we'd ordinarily interact with. 
how are we going to support our well-being? Uh, getting out and going to the park or forest or woodland or nature reserve or, you know, in Brighton, we go down to the beach a lot. People are swimming because they're not in the pubs. They're not in the cinemas or restaurants or cafes. So like, well, they're walking on the seafront. They're going swimming. And, and it's fantastic to see that kind of real um, recognition and engagement with nature. So our work is um, reflecting that in a couple of ways. We have, um, we've just written a book on how to design for well-being in the home. That's gonna be coming out in May um, with Dawling Kindersley. And also we've just uh, completed and, and launched a new online course called Biophilic Design in the Home. Well, we've done exactly that. We've taken all that knowledge and research that we have experience of in the commercial world and found ways to translate those ideas into the home. So we talk about kind of what biophilic design is and the background ethos behind it. We look at what's called the 14 patterns, which are essentially 14 different ways that we can find to bring nature in. So they're, they're patterns or, or kind of features, natural features. And, and then we look at how you translate those into the home to create spaces in the home that, that serve you better. So bedrooms that can help you to sleep and become more rested and recuperated, uh, kitchens and dining rooms where you can eat, but maybe also transform to work, how you can actually work better and healthier at home and bring in some of those biophilic design features, and then how you can engage with nature in the garden in a better way. So uh, the online course is uh, kind of available on our, on our website and uh, we launched a couple of weeks ago. It's been amazing, the, the overwhelming kind of interest in it, people signing up for the course has been absolutely fantastic. So clearly palpable shift away from commercial spaces towards uh, the value of domestic spaces and how they can support physical and mental well-being is, is absolutely there. That's great. I mean, am I right in thinking that you were primarily working in commercial buildings in workplaces and was the home already a focus? I'm just wondering, was this a direction you were kind of already moving in or is this very much a, a lockdown inspired development? Uh, no, we... Well, we, we've been working on commercial spaces, so we advise organisations about how to integrate uh, well-being features into buildings. So, so planting plans, greenery, uh, other elements of nature, uh, artificial elements of nature. So we we sort of advise all sorts of organisations around the world on that. But we were recognising that more and more of these spaces were becoming more inspired by the domestic environment and how organisations wanted to, to make people just feel more, more at home. More, more happy, calm and relaxed. They're not necessarily trying to say we are your home, but to go, look, you're gonna be a better person when you're more comfortable, when you're more relaxed. We don't wanna just sort of make you feel really stressed. Nobody wins in that situation. So there, there seemed to be a shift in the way that organizations were thinking about design, away from just about impressing sort of brand identity and corporate structure, power, wealth and identity, towards a more sort of intrinsic approach. Say, well, how could we harness design to just make that person feel good, to help them sit at their desk and work better? How could we use design to make them have a better meeting, to be more creative? How could we bring them together to meet, mix and collide, to share ideas and to innovate and be creative? And, and you know, that idea of just, you know, creating a welcoming, homely environment where people felt comfortable and was, was important. And, and what we recognized was there just was a lack of knowledge um, around domestic environments. So I actually started writing this online course about 18 months ago, and it, and it just sort of coincided then that, you know, COVID started and, and the ideas that we're investigating uh, and the creative thinking we're putting together became ever more relevant. Yeah, just ahead of the curve. Um, 
and I guess we're always <laughs> and uh, and with well-being at such a focus already for your for your work in that's kind of only become more and more important as well the subjects become more talked about really I I think that lockdown and pandemic has obviously brought it into the spotlight but I don't think it's new it makes some of the conditions harder but it just makes them more um less hidden as well kind of with most most I think things. the other thing that it's done is it, is it, is it shifted well-being in buildings away from somebody else's responsibility. Like it's not, it's not your boss's responsibility to look after you and the work, to make sure that you're happy and comfortable, the, the chairs are ergonomically designed and that there's a good sort of uh, level of air, a good level of air quality. Now, you know, when you're working at home, it's like, well, is my home, my boss isn't going to come fix it, my organisation, maybe I should do something about it. And I think mm. that's a really important lesson that we're all learning now, that, that we all have to look after our, our physical and mental well-being. And the likelihood is, is that, you know, even when COVID lockdowns end, that there will, you know, still be some level of homeworking for most people. And that we've got to be finding ways to, to make that better in a way that, you know, isn't a detriment to our well-being or detriment to, to our our, our social life and our personal lives if we're going to be bringing our work into our homes. So I think that's one of the positive aspects of it. I mean, there are many, so uh, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, definitely. Um, shifting that responsibility onto you or even just creating that awareness in the first place that that health and well-being is something that takes actual work and effort and time and on your blog you published some well-being tips for for the winter was that something you usually do or is that because it's a particularly challenging winter i think we're all having to work a little bit harder to to support a physical and mental well-being and they've got to be a little bit more creative and it, it does get really hard with the monotony of lockdown to go well, what next what am i going to do so we were just keen to put forward some of our knowledge in this area and, and just to try and inspire people to, to do other things. Yeah, just, just, you know, making sure you get things like what we call a photon shower, which is an intense burst of natural light first thing in the morning, which is really good for helping you to reset your circadian rhythms and your circadian rhythms um, uh, are the rhythms that um, support your, your sleep-wake cycle. Uh, and so by getting this sort of burst of natural light about, you know, half an hour to an hour, every morning, it can create this better balance between your, your levels of energy and alertness in the day, but also to help you sleep better. So, so doing simple things like that is really good. So if you're working from home, maybe just go out for a walk first thing in the morning, get that natural light, feel refreshed. It feels like you've walked back into work to a certain extent. Um, you know, it's a really simple thing, doesn't need to cost any money. Rearranging furniture. So if you're working from home, having your desk next to a window, so you, you're maximizing natural light, you maybe have a longer view when you're looking out, doesn't need to cost any money, it's just rearranging the desk and, and, and you'll, you'll sleep better at night, you'll work better uh, and you'll feel less stressed. Um, having plants and greenery around is not just good for, for air quality. It's also nice, you know, just to uh, you know, have something to tend to, to look after. The therapeutic quality 
Uh, and also the sort of sensory quality of interacting with elements of nature is good for you in terms of, you know, the, the, the kind of sense that the plants give out. But also uh, it's good for your microbiome as well, which is your sort of the, your, your uh, intestinal gut flora, which is sort of fundamental to your, your physical and mental well-being and, and an area that's sort of yet to be sort of more, more deeply investigated. Mm, yeah, all good, really good tips. And, um, and how is it for you at this point in the year, in, in this kind of, well, see this moment in time is quite unprecedented, but also just in this season, in the, in the annual cycle, sort of, how's, how do you feel? I'm not somebody who goes into sort of massive sort of troughs, but I think like many people, you go through sort of peaks and waves, don't you? Peaks and troughs. And, and so, you know, it's important to find ways of keeping yourself buoyant. So, you know, uh, I mean, I sort of take regular exercise, you know, go running down to the seafront, I cycle every day, um, got pets that I interact with, and uh, I started a little running club with some of my neighbours, so, so twice a week we get up, and at 7.15 in the morning we just go and do 5k. Wow. It's not about running fast, it's just about running and, and, and sort of hanging out for mm. half an hour, and then going home, you'd like, wow, it's just, it feels really good. Uh, and recognizing those those little things, and I think you know you just work a little bit harder to support yourself. Um, you know, it, I come into work and it's just me, and I spend eight nine hours on my own. We we had some team and Zoom calls and, and all that stuff, and then I get home and it, and it used to be that I'd go home and you know maybe do another hour's work or so, and now I'm like go home like forget it, light a put a fire on in the wood burning stove, put some music on, you know. Do the therapeutic activity of, of doing a bit of cooking, eat well, hang out with the family, just just take the pressure off a little bit. And, and you know what, the world's still there the next morning, even if I haven't answered all my 60 emails in the day, uh, you know, you just get back to it and it's okay, another day. I'm getting quite into Wim Hof at the moment. Uh, so, so, you know, think about, you know, mental connection with cold water, uh, taking cold showers. Um, went, uh, I've got two daughters. And I'm really keen for them to engage with nature. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, just before it got really cold, uh, they were saying, oh, dad, it's really warm. It's like, mm, it's like 10 degrees, nine degrees. <laughs> Let's go surfing. And I'm like, oh, no. Doctor said, okay, well, they want to do it. Great, I'm going to do it. So, so we kind of got our wetsuits on and got the surfboards out and went down to the sea and um, swam and, and splashed around a bit. And, and it was kind of fantastic, you know, in, in the depths of winter to be in the sea, bobbing around. It, it certainly, um, certainly marked the day. Yeah. Uh, it was kind of fantastic as well. Yeah, it's just one of those things, you're gonna grab the opportunity when it's there and make something of the day and, and engage with nature. I think that's really important. Yeah, I agree completely. Um, thank you so much for, for talking to, to me today. And um, pleasure. yeah, I hope you have a, a, a good weekend. Uh, yeah. Good watering of the plants this afternoon. Yeah, I'm going mountain biking actually. Um, oh wow! Yeah, and it's going to be really muddy, but we. But I'm going uh, up into the downs. To Great. Just um, through the mud and forests and woods. I haven't been out oh. for ages, so so that that's another lovely thing from Brighton is just to get out quite quickly and yeah. be up on the South Down Way, and uh, it's just like hundred miles of like route across the South Downs. It's kind of right Good. there, and then no cars amazing views just like immersed in nature it's great to see a picture of oliver and find links to his website socials and forthcoming book design a healthy home 
head to the blogcast at balancegarden.co.uk. Here is an excerpt from some writing by Uncle Mark, Get to Know Your Kith, which quotes the geologian Thomas Berry, who wrote that the greatest of human discoveries in the future will be the discovery of human intimacy with all those other modes of being that live with us on this planet. Berry urges us to grow more intimate with our surroundings, seeing it as the surest way to reverse the devastation that our separation from the rest of nature has wrought on the world around us. In its ancient usage, the word kith in the familiar phrase kith and kin meant your native land and derived in turn from the root to know. It emphasises the belief that it is vital to know our country as well as our kinsfolk, that we evolve to be in relationship not only with our fellow humans but with our more than human companions too. If we can take the time to pay attention, we see ever more distinctly the seasonal, weekly, even daily changes that are now gathering pace. These precious, fragile moments are the first stirrings of nature's rebirth and in turn can call our attention to what may be stirring in us. Allow yourself to transform as the world does. A hundred other changes will be glimpsed as the year unfolds, just as our worlds change. Notice these and we will become ever more familiar with the nature of our place and with our own nature too. Mark's blog includes tips for a simple nature meditation and also this poem by Alice Oswald called Snowdrop. A pale and pining girl, head bowed, heart gnawed, whose figure nods and shivers in a shawl of fine white wool, has suddenly appeared in the damp woods, as mild and mute as snowfall. She may not last, she has no strength at all, but stoops and shakes as if she'd stood all night on one bare foot, confiding with the moonlight. One morning, among several hundred clear-eyed ghosts who get up in the cold and blink and turn into those trembling emblems of night frosts, she brings her burnt heart with her in an urn of ashes which she opens to re-mourn, having no other outlet to express her wild flower sense of wounded gentleness. Yes, she's no more now than a drop of snow on a green stem. Her name is now her calling. Her mind is just a frozen melting of glow of water swollen to the point of falling, which maybe has no meaning. There's no telling. But what a beauty. What a mighty power of patience kept intact is now in flower. In these 
COVID times, I've heartily welcomed the more underrated manifestations of love being ushered onto centre stage, which has long been occupied by an idea of love that can be generally unhelpful, non-inclusive and not really fully representative of all the love there actually is. From self-care and mental health awareness to outpourings of affection for NHS workers, the pandemic opened the gates for a wave of grief to sweep the world following what might have been just another murder of an African-American under the guise of law enforcement. Meanwhile, local communities were bolstered by mutual aid networks as people found ways to help their fellow humans however they could. Before COVID, I'd smile at people on the street, but my friendly eye contact did not always elicit a reciprocal response. Now, above the mask, our eyes seek each other's for a small but mighty exchange. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, they say. It's not just our close friends and family we're missing. If anything, we're probably more in touch with them than ever. But humankind as a whole, people we don't know that well, who we've never met or might have rubbed shoulders with in a crowd or a queue, friends that might have been, friends of friends. It's the love for our species we've been reminded of. The pandemic has also been a messenger of love for the more than human, not just our own pets and plants, but our shared places gardens, parks and forests. Perhaps more than anything else, we've depended on green space to breathe and be close during this time of fearful unknowing and physical isolation. Nature's role in health and wellness, although scientifically proven, has been impossible to ignore since Covid came out of the wild and chased us all indoors. With business as usual interminably interrupted, just as spring burst onto the scene, it stole the show in 2020 and still, now a year later, even in the rain, wind and snow, the great outdoors continues to be the most and only popular attraction. The pandemic has reliably refined and defined what really matters. So, will it have made Valentine's mean something more than mass-produced roses exclusively for those well-moneyed and romantically in love? Either way, I hope that together we will continue to celebrate all the love we have for everything that makes life worth living. Love for our friends and family, love for ourselves, our species and love for the natural world that our species depends on. Thank you for listening to the Balanced Garden podcast, which is written and produced by me, Tiger Lily Raphael, and co-produced by me, Jasmine Pradhan. Thank you to our guests, You can find pictures of them and links to everything featured in this episode, as always, in the blogcast at balancegarden.co.uk, including the soundtrack, 
Yes Mike from the Manasseh Meets Praise LP, produced by my father Nick Manasseh and licensed by Roots Garden Records. I hope you found this month's podcast helpful and if you'd like to you can support it while supporting yourself with online yoga classes or through our Patreon page. I'll be back next month so until then live well and enjoy. Balanced Garden is a well-living space that bridges the world inside and outside. We offer seasonal reflections, recipes and practices through a podcast, blog, yoga and meditation to support healthy relationships with our bodies, minds, each other, nature and all the spaces in between.